Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Second Peter chapter 1, if you would, we're pursuing a life of holiness. Second Peter chapter 1, take your Bibles. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 11 as practice makes perfect. Practice makes perfect. Whether you spent your youth learning how to play the piano, the violin, or some other instrument, or toiled under a coach who ran you ragged running laps, swinging the bat until your hands blistered, or dribbling basketballs until you were dizzy, you probably have heard the phrase, practice makes perfect. How many have heard that phrase? Practice makes perfect. With that mantra, coaches, fathers, and teachers have challenged their charges to push themselves to the maximum in order to achieve their full potential. Trusting that they knew best, we responded both negatively and positively to their methods, hoping that we would reap the wonderful benefits of our sacrifice. Most of us desire to be the best at what we love, at doing. It could be sports or music, creative arts, mechanics, engineering, whatever you may be, you typically want to be the best or be very well, good at it. And you're willing to accept the cost no matter how high it may be. Practice, practice, practice. That's drilled into us. We know that's what we must do to become an expert, to perfect something. As a player and a coach myself, I would drill this mantra into myself and students. We would spend hours going over drills and plays and conditioning. However, many times with no sign of improvement and frustration builds within the coach and the player. Feeling like a failure and questioning their commitment as well as my own, I came upon this quote by Vince Lombardi, the great Green Bay Packer coach, who once remarked, and you'll see it there on the screen, practice does not make perfect. Only perfect practice makes perfect. Once again, practice, he says, does not make perfect, but only perfect practice makes perfect. Now, it took a while for that quote to make some sense to me. At first glance, it seems self-defeating. I mean, who can practice perfectly? Was that not the whole idea about practice, to get it perfectly? Was it the whole thing to get it right? to work on the skills necessary to obtain the perfection that you're desiring? How can you do something perfectly without constant multiple practices? After some time, it became apparent to me of what he meant. He wasn't advocating perfection as in the completion of skills, but perfection in practice itself. In other words, practice must be organized and planned and purpose. Just throwing out a couple of basketballs and scrimmaging or running laps will not make one better. As a coach, I recognize that I need to organize our practices with a purpose and a plan on how to make the players and team better. I needed to run better practices, not allowing them to goof off or to give partial effort. We needed to take practices seriously. Only then would we see improvement. In many ways, that's what Peter is encouraging his readers to do. Practice perfectly to make 
perfect. Now, as we open the letter of 2 Peter, we learn that God's grace serves as a foundation for a life of godliness to which we have been called. Peter is continuing the theme of his first letter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter reminded them that you are a chosen race. Now, listen, now, when I read these words... I want this to be more than just something you're listening to, but these are, this is God's revelation to you today. Sitting here, listen to me. If you are born again, if you are a, a follower of Christ, this here describes who you are now, no matter what you think of yourself, no matter what your self-esteem or whatever purpose you may have, this is God's word for you. So please listen and respond and accept them as they are. For he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, he, he describes us. But now we are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And he says, because of that, we were to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against our souls. And you and I coming in this morning as we're participating in communion, we understand that wage, uh, waging of war that's going on in our soul. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among those who do not know Christ, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there is an expectation as those of us who proclaim the marvelous uh, light that we've been brought into, we are to live in such a way that brings honor to God. He says to live as people who are free. Yes, we are not called to legal requirements, which many times we try to tell people, do this, don't do this. We are to live as people of free, but not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Those words written over 2,000 or close to 2,000 years ago is still applicable to you here today. It is as if God is reaching past the annals of, of history and he's reaching out to you and saying, do you not understand? Here are your marching orders. This is how you are to live. This is how I'm revealing myself to you. Now, as Peter writes his second letter to these elect exiles of Asia Minor, he reminds them in verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter, if you want to look there, chapter 1, 3 and 4. He says that a life of godliness is rooted in and dependent upon God's grace. And I shared at the beginning of our series that once we understand that God's grace is a foundation for a life of godliness, you and I are now free to live out our calling. Everything we need is there. As we look at our passage, we find that there were three truths that come from this foundation. You see that number one on the monitor is God has made divine provision for our salvation. He has given everything when he called us, chose us, chosen us and justified us. Everything that we need to live godly and holy has been given to us. It's in there. The recipe is there. Number two, we are to diligently pursue a life of holiness. We are all called to live a life of holiness. And last week, Dustin shared the third point, that godly virtues are necessary for entrance in the kingdom in verses 8 through 11. In doing so, Dustin pointed out that Peter wrote that these godly virtues are necessary for the Christian because a believer who is growing in these qualities will have an effective and faithful faith along with a warning. 
that the Christians who lack these qualities are spiritually blind and have spiritual amnesia. So God has called us to do something specific in our lives. Today we're going to cover verses 10 through 11. As Peter continues to note two more benefits of why godly virtues are necessary for entrance in the kingdom of God. Knowing that redundancy is the key to learning, I want to once again repeat what Steve Lawson wrote that I shared with you several weeks ago. You might recall this. He says, your godliness, and again, your godliness is more important than your giftedness and your maturity, even though your ministry. Now, many times at churches, we said in the last few weeks that we get this backwards. We want to look at your giftedness. What can you give to the church? How can you serve in the ministry? Can we put you in the nursery? Can we put you in children's church? Can we make you ushers and elders and deacons and things of that nature? And many times as churches, we do people a disservice because once we get them saved, we just want to put them in some type of purpose or some type of ministry. However, God says he's more interested that the Christian, the believer, is growing in godliness. That his life mirrors that of his son. And that we're growing in maturity. And so not to say that our ministry and our giftedness is not important. For we've, we've talked about that and you need to find that. If you are not yet serving in your giftedness, you need to do so as a member of the church. We need to call you to that. But yet how you live and how you think and how you spend your money is actually more important than all those things. This quote correctly captures the command of Peter, who had earlier wrote, as obedient children, do not conform to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he has called you as holy, be also holy in all of your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. So with that, 2 Peter chapter 1, let's continue in verses 10 through 11. It's there in your Bibles on the monitors if you need so. Where Peter now says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For then this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, these are wonderful words. So, Father, let us look at these words and see them anew if need be. Lord, let us understand what you're revealing here to us. Father, in our hearts, challenge us. Lord, let our minds be sharp and let us not be distracted, but let us pay attention to your words. Father, be with me as I speak. Let me speak words that are edifying, that build up, that challenge if there is rebuke that is necessary, let it be with love. And let us differentiate between my mere opinion and from your word. In all things, Lord, let us respond to your word with joy. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. Now, by writing, therefore, we all understand what that means. Peter is connecting his next statement with the evidence of our salvation from the previous statement. Since we are partakers of the divine nature of God, and because we have escaped from the corruption of our sinful desires, we are to make every effort to build upon our faith. We've looked at that in the previous verses. So that you and I may be effective and fruitful and not suffer from the spiritual blindness and amnesia that Dustin shared with us last week. He now is going to encourage them to be all the more diligent. 
Now, this is similar to the perfect practice makes perfect mantra. As Peter wants these believers to adopt the mindset and habits that will help them to grow in the knowledge of the grace of God. Peter is wanting to motivate the believers to action so they may be confirmed in their calling and gain entrance into the eternal kingdom. First, Peter tells them to be more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Now, I know many of us over the years have struggled with doubts about our salvation. I believe it is one of Satan's biggest tools to paralyze the Christian and to keep us from doing what we should be doing. We recall the time that we accepted Jesus and we asked for forgiveness of our sin. We remember our baptism and a new desire to follow Jesus. But over the years, that excitement, that desire wanes and seems to lessen. Do you understand? Have you had that problem in your life? Have you ever suffered from that? I know I have. We find ourselves struggling in our fight with sin, maybe even giving up and succumbing to our old ways and former habits. Some of you have maybe even accepted Christ when you were very young, not even remembering how you felt or thought at the time. And now you wonder if you were too young to even know what you were doing, or some of you might have just followed a friend or wanting to fit in with others. You decided to say a prayer, the sinner's prayer, but you noticed no difference. And you're confused of whether or not you are saved or not. There's many of us that have gone through that. Maybe today you yourself are struggling with that same thought. Unfortunately, the way that we present salvation has been many times woefully and inadequate or unbiblical. I believe many reasons why people struggle with this is because we have not presented salvation biblically. We have made salvation into some type of personal decision that requires only just the belief or the intellectual knowledge of what Jesus has done for us or in some emotional fear to avoid hell at all costs. Growing up, I remember that was most of the revivals was five days. Back then we'd had revival five to seven days and it was just somebody just beating on the pulpit, just telling you that you're going to burn, burn, turn or burn, turn or burn. You know, and you're just going to go to hell. And so, boy, there's no way. I remember one message in a, in a youth camp one time was the elevator to hell. And that was just, I tell you, the pews were filled with everyone getting saved. Youth pastors were getting saved just so they do it. You know, you, you got to make sure. Or it's just the selfish desire to acquire paradise without any sacrifice. Everybody wants to go to heaven, right? Who doesn't want to go to heaven? And so we sell salvation is, well, don't you want your best life? Don't you want to have an eternity of Fridays? Yeah, everybody wants that. There's no cost to it. That's an unbiblical and an inadequate gospel message. I'm sorry, and I just had to smile. That was so great. I, uh, this is wonderful. We need more babies in the church. What's that? No. <laughs> But you're cute as well, I suppose, in your own bearded way. Tony, can you cut this part of the message out of the, the just? So Joel remi reminds me and, and agrees with me that the biblical way that we share the gospel has been wrong. And many times leads to this type of mindset of where we're always struggling. Am I saved? Have I done enough? Have I believed enough? Do I have enough emotion? 
And for many of us, we can't remember an emotion. Maybe I didn't have a, an emotional response, so I, maybe I need to have more, uh, more tears. Or I did it when I was young, and so I just don't remember. You know, it was, in, it was in junior church or something like that. And let me tell you this, parents and children who are here, when you grow older and you struggle with this, Please do not, when your children come and say, I don't remember about salvation, am I saved? And they're doubting that and they're struggling with that. Do not take them to a family Bible or to their Bible and say, well, look at here, I wrote it in your Bible. When I grew up, that's what we did. You would find September 10th, 1972 in one Bible. And I think another Bible you might find May of 2000, or not 2000, but May 1975. And so we would point back to when you got saved or baptized. Do not do that. For take those fears and those struggles as real. Never confirm a salvation that may not be real and true. So I say that to say that we must understand what salvation really is. However, Scripture informs that salvation is not our ability to make a decision. Scripture clearly tells us that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It tells us that none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The Bible goes on to condemn us and say, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Ephesians tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. He says that we were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the sons of disobedience, and that we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and they will be by nature children of wrath. There is nothing special about us. Whether you were born in a Christian home or not, you were all disobedient children deserving of the wrath of God. This was our condition. And the human inability to, own not, to not only please God, but seek him. We never would seek him. There is nothing within us that desired God or would choose him. The Bible tells us that without the supernatural intervention of God, you and I would be hopeless. We would be lost forever in our sins. Facing death and the consequences of a rebellion against a holy, mighty God. Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. And in verse 4. In here we see the wonderful grace of God is declared when the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 after saying that we were like the rest of mankind, children of disobedience, children of wrath. It comes with that great word, but. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and you have been raised up and seated with him in the heavenly places. So verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, of his kindness. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And he reminds us, though, that this is not because of any good in ourselves, but look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, one chapter back. He reminds us that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons to Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us. For in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. But one might ask, well, how can I know whether or not I've been chosen by God? The answer is simple. If you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, a Christian will practice the qualities of a Christian. It's practice, practice, practice. God's election and calling effectively produce transformation. We are new creatures with new desires, a new way of thinking and a new way of acting. Peter had told them to make every effort to add to the faith. Well, as we've seen, faith itself is a gift from God. Christ's call is an effective one that creates faith. What is faith? Again, let me give you one that you can write down. Faith is a confident trust in the person and promises of God. It's recognizing that it's not about yourself, but you're confidently trusting in the person of God and the works of Christ. When Peter is reminding them of is the human side of salvation. Now, I just shared with you just a moment ago, God's side. He is the one who has chosen, called, justified, and adopted us as his children. Being born again, what we call regeneration, is when God replaces our dead, rebellious, disobedient hearts with a new heart that beats for God. One that has tasted and seen that God is good. It is true that salvation is all of God, but it does demand two things from us at conversion. That moment when he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Those two things are repentance and faith. Repentance is a recognition recognition that you and I cannot please God through our own merits. It is the turning away from our works that are dead that produce nothing but death. And it's a confident trust that God accepts us only on the merits of Christ's work on our behalf. We call that conversion. It's a two-sided coin, repentance and faith. But do not mistake that as salvation by works. Again, repentance and faith is a gift that comes from God. Without that gift, you and I would never convert. You and I would never see the goodness of God. We would never choose God, desire God. So Peter is pleading with his readers here to confirm the gift of God that was given to them. The way to do that is to examine oneself, to take stock of your life, your works, and your attitude. Very similar as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians during our Lord's Supper. Test and examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Your life is to be marked by an increase of those qualities that we read earlier in this passage. Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These eight things. 
He says, make every effort to add to your faith, virtue, then knowledge. And we've spoken of this message. I'll refer you back to our website. You can look at the messages earlier, two weeks ago on this passage. But the Bible is saying these qualities is something are something that does not come to you naturally. Now, with that, let me take a moment and make an editorial note. These are qualities that people that do not know Christ can do. They, they can have virtue and knowledge, self-control. They can be self-disciplined, and they can show brotherly affection and love, but it's not the kind that has the supernatural fruits of the Spirit. In other words, their fruits in which they do these things, even though they are tinted by saying sin as ours are as well, they produce no spiritual rewards. They, spirit, they produce no spiritual benefit to them. There's God does not look at them. They're still as filthy rags. However, for you and I, even as Christians, he has given these things within us and we are to work these things. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, what are we working out? The virtue, the knowledge, the self-control, all those things he's given us as we practice, practice, practice these types of, these types of things. J.C. Rowell, a famous pastor, wrote, we must be holy because this is the only sound evidence that you and I have a saving faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not to some membership record. It's not to a date in your Bible. It's not to maybe a certificate that was given to you. It's not the baptism that you might remember or the testimony that you had to give at membership, but it's the fact that you are holy and that you are increasing in those. Not that you're sinless and perfected, but that you are increasing in these things, that you are pursuing holiness. Al Mohler says true conversion is marked by lifelong repentance and a new life of holiness. It is not salvation by works, but salvation with works. Please, again, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. Let me give you a biblical example of how that looks and how that works out. This is that famous passage of faith and works. Show me your faith, and I'll show you my works, and vice versa. In James chapter 2, look at verse 14. James, the brother of Jesus, says this, What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Look at me, I have faith, I trust God, I know the Bible. But yet he never works out that faith. Can that faith save him? That's what James asked. In verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So by faith itself, it does not have works is dead. In other words, he's saying here, listen, this person says they have faith. Maybe, maybe they have a biblical knowledge. Maybe they assent to the facts of Christ. Maybe they have a membership. Maybe they're a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, but yet they come and see someone in need that has a true need. But all they could give him is some type of holy platitude. What does that show any type of godliness? How does that show any type of brotherly affection? How does that show any type of love? James says it doesn't. Their life is devoid of the very things that your faith give you. It's like a chocolate cake with no chocolate. 
What's the purpose? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works in verse 18. Well, James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is what? Useless. If you are not practicing these qualities, if they're not increasing in your life, he says your faith is really useless. <coughs> I gave the illustration of one man, from my understanding, he's a famous theologian. His name is, is it a, I think it's A.W. Pink. A uh, famous writer, wrote some of the great theological books, but his one glaring weakness is that he was so heavenly minded that he never ever went to church. He didn't feel like he needed to go to church. So he never interacted with the body. And though you may look at his works, and there's some ivory, very intelligent stuff that he's writing about the things of God, they're deficient in many ways. It's like me being able to come here and preach, but never doing any life with you together. Never you seeing how I live my life. You should see in me a person who's, who's growing in virtue and knowledge. Self-control, we're throwing that one out for, the, for now. But steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love, these are the things that the Bible says should be evidence. That's how you confirm whether or not you truly are one of God's children. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, does anyone know? Good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. To accept Christ means that you are life transformed. Too many times I have heard testimonies of people who have said, well, I accept Jesus when I was a child, when I was young, in Sunday school, in my mother's house, whatever. And then they go through a life of sin and rebellion and all these things. And then when they finally get in trouble or life is down, then they finally say, oh, I'm coming back to the Lord. I was saved, but for 20, 30, 40 years, I've just abandoned him. I was, I was backslidden. We create these new unbiblical terms to describe something that's not truly biblical. I would say that you didn't truly come to faith until then, when you saw your need for Christ. So I'd encourage you, we're to confirm our calling. Not only ours, but ourselves. That's what it means to be a member of a church. When you become a member of a church, we are confirming our calling together. Are they increasing in these things? Peter is informing them that by practicing these qualities, a believer will never fall. By never fall, he means stumbling, to fall away into apostasy or to lead the faith. Now, this does not mean that a Christian will never sin or struggle with sin, but describing the biblical truth of God's protecting hand on his children. In John chapter 10, Jesus promised his disciples that my sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish, Jesus says. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Again, John would write later, later in his first letter. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And if, anyone, and if everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. 
is as the song said, he will hold you fast. If you know truly, if you truly know Christ, confirm your calling for he will hold you fast. You will not fall, stumble into leaving the faith. Will you fall and stumble into sin? Yes, we all do so. If you made it up to here to this point and haven't fall, then you're almost ready for heaven right now. Even here today in our listening and in my preaching, we are already sin tainted, are we not? Fighting sin. But the Bible tells us that we confirm that calling. Douglas Moo writes that Christians must earnestly, earnestly seek to grow in Christian virtue in order to validate this calling. He goes on to note that striving for spiritual maturity is not an option in the Christian life. And some of you, all you want is you just want the, you know, the fire insurance card. You know, you just want to get out of jail free card. You don't want, you don't want to follow Christ. You just want that card. That's not salvation. Now, Peter writes this to be an encouragement and a warning. Be encouraged that if you have repented of your dead works, and if you have trusted that God accepted the works of Christ on your behalf, that God will supernaturally work in your life to make you more like Jesus. Be encouraged by that. That's the promise of Philippians 1. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. You will not fall, so do not Slumber, Christian. Do not be afraid, but trust in the one who will hold you fast. But the warning is as true, just as true. You and I must make, we must diligently make every effort to grow in the knowledge of the grace of God with these qualities. Steve Lawson again remarks that the engine that drives the life of the disciple is a growing knowledge of God and a deepening love for Christ. You, may, you, you should have a deeper desire for Christ and a deep, deeper desire to know about him. It shouldn't lessen as you become spiritually mature. It should grow. Here's the warning. If we are not growing in these things, if our life is not marked by a practice of these things, then you and I are in dangerous territory and we're in jeopardy of hearing the words of Christ to those that were deceived in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, the one who practices the qualities. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? Almost echoing what Steve Lawson says, God is more uh, interested in your godliness and your maturity rather than your giftedness and ministry, but they're putting out the giftedness and ministry. He says, I will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. But Jesus told them that those who obey his commandments will be rock solid. They'll be like the man who built his house upon the rock. And when the winds and the waves and the rains came, it stood firm. Contrary to the one who builds upon the sand. And when the winds and the waves come, it's destroyed and demolished. So firstly, he confirms your calling. Be diligent about it. Don't dilly-dally. 
Do not just walk around your Christian life thinking, well, I can just, you know, I'm going to live my life now. And when I get older, when I get married, when I have children or, you know, what, uh, then I'll start being serious about being a Christian. No, God has called you now as a young person. Be diligent. Be diligent. Second, not only does uh, practicing these qualities confirm one's calling election, but they also give confirmation of the access to the eternal kingdom of heaven. First Peter chapter, or Second Peter chapter one. Look at verse eleven. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As we increase in these qualities, they reproduce the fruits of the Spirit. That gives us evidence of health, a tree that is spiritually healthy. Peter has encouraged them by stating that their diligence in practicing obedience to God's word, putting away sinful desires, renewing their mind and putting on the new self will gain the reward of the faithful servant. We all yearn to hear the words of the master who will say at the time of our death, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now those words echo in our mind as we approach our day. You and I need to develop the thinking of Pastor Jonathan Edwards, that spiritual giant of the 18th century who wrote sinners in the hands of an angry God. And he was one of the great leaders of the Great Awakening. While a young man, he made a series of revolutions that would, uh, resolutions that would come to define his life and ministry. Res Resolution 22 speaks to Edwards' desire to be ready for the life after this one. It's here on the screen. Look what he writes. And he wrote this as a young man. He says, I resolved to endeavor to attain for myself as much happiness. Now, you and I could agree with that. That's the American dream. But the happiness where? In the other world. Now, he's not, you know, like DC talking about parallel universes or multiverses here. He's talking about heaven. I resolve to endeavor to attain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yea, violence I am capable of or can bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of it. What is he saying there is I want to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek ye first, it says in Colossians, put your mind on the things above, not on things on the earth. Or echoing the words of Jesus, put your treasures in heaven. His desire was to be so godly in this world that it would reap the benefits not here, but where eternity resides. One writer remarks about this resolution. He says the happiness is in, in the other world, in heaven, about eternity, was so important to Edwards that he resolved to pursue it with all this power and capability in any way that he could think of. But what is happiness in the other world? But the rewards in heaven and the, and the gift of salvation that you and I received. You know, it's so easy for you and I to forget that our actions matter for eternity. But Jesus said, I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give each according to your works. Edward recognized that scripture is replete with the teaching that every person will appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Practice. 
practice, practice. But as Vince Larbardi says, perfect practice makes perfect. You and I are to be diligently making every effort to increase in these qualities so that we may confirm our calling and confirm our access into the kingdom of God. It would be good for you and I to consider the same thoughts of Jonathan Edwards. Peter calls us to be diligently, confirm our calling so that we will not fall, but reap the rewards of a faithful servant. May you and I take his words to heart as the words of a loving father to his dear children. Let us pursue holiness with all that is within us so that you and I may glorify God and draw others to himself. I'd like to close with just this verse here that's on the screen. It's found in Jude chapter 1, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forever. May we grow in the grace of the knowledge of a God who deserves all praise, all worship, and all power. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to take a moment to pause to consider what has been spoken through God's word what I put to encourage you and challenge you to pray and respond to the spirit this morning God's word was open God's word was preached God's word was read and now it's time for his people to respond let me end with this God wants you to understand that though all he has accomplished all that is necessary for salvation, he has still called you to grow in spiritual maturity. He wants you to believe that he has given you everything that you need to confirm your salvation and that he will hold you fast, protect you, and bring you safely into his eternal kingdom. God wants you to desire him above all things. It is time for you and I to put aside anything that would prevent us from acquiring and growing in these qualities. God wants you to diligently pursue godliness and holiness in your life, obeying his commands with joy and looking forward to his second coming. Would you this day diligently pursue those things that confirm your calling and your access to kingdom of God? Father, we just come before you and we just thank you for your word. Let us hold fast to it as you hold to us. Let us realize that this is your revelation. Not to beat us down, not to, not to, uh, to, to keep us as, as slaves in which we have no liberty, but those who desire you, who have tasted and seen that you are good. Who want to practice and sacrifice and give all that we have, Father, so that we can obtain you. Show us how to do so this morning. Commit our hearts to you. If there is any here that do not know Christ, Lord, I pray that today that they would come to know, for the day is the day of salvation. May they see that they need to repent from their dead works and turn and trust in your promises and in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, let us as Christians pursue godliness in all of our lives. And may we do that as a community, loving, encouraging, and challenging. We praise in Christ's name. 
Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.